right, guys, this week we have one of the most engaging, entertaining, interesting stories that's ever been told on this podcast. We have Angelo Fermo, who's a retired Homeland Security agent, coming on to talk about uh, how he got into federal law enforcement, his incredible uh, journey to that, and, and the time he spent uh, in narcotics to human trafficking and everything in between. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast, where we're in pursuit of a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. Got a great episode today. I've got a good friend of mine, uh, Angelo Fermo. He's retired Homeland Security agent, uh, and he's going to tell us his story about how he got into kind of that federal law enforcement world. It's an incredible, um, it's just an incredible story. And so we crossed paths. We had some friends in common, and I live in Wetumpka. He lives down in, on the eastern shore in Baldwin County. And, uh, we, we, we kept missing each other. Hey, let's get together here. Let's grab coffee. And it could never work out. And he goes, well, I'm, I got to go pick up a sink in Wetumpka where I live. And, uh, he came over and, uh, we smoked cigars and he hung out at the house for a number of hours. And I got to hear his story and I thought to myself, you've got to come on the podcast and tell the story. It's incredible. Um, of, you know, kind of breaking generational curses and, you know, um, just really, really cool. Uh, a story that you guys are going to want to tune in for. But before we jump into that, I want to remind you guys, wherever you're getting your podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Rumble, wherever, uh, make sure you subscribe, follow, click the bell, whatever it is to make sure you're getting notifications when we uh, produce and distribute content. Anytime we publish uh, any new podcasts, you're going to want to know that those uh, are published. And so please subscribe, follow, like, whatever the terminology on your podcast app is. Uh, and then... Um, Go and support us. $5 a month can uh, make you an 1819 News uh, member. By, by becoming a member, you get access to special behind-the-scenes content like the overtime segment. I'm going to be cutting with Angelo today. Uh, as a former uh, Homeland Security agent, he has some incredible insight into what's going on at the border, uh, the border crisis, and all these other things. And so we're going to jump into that. In order for you guys to have access to hearing that conversation, uh, you got to go to the website, 1819news.com. Click the Become a Member button, uh, and you can join for as little as $5 a month. You can give more if you'd like. We'd obviously appreciate that, uh, and you'll also get some cool merch as well. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump in, uh, and I'm going to introduce Angelo Fermo. Angelo, how are you? Hey, Brian. How are you doing today, man? Man, I am uh, doing all right. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, another day in God's country, you know, doing God's work. It's really cool. I appreciate you having me on, man. It's it's awesome. You know, and just listening to you, you're, you're right. I mean, as soon as we met and hit it off, it's like we were kindred spirits. You yeah, know? So definitely. It's like we've known each other our whole lives. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I love it, man. It's great. And it's it's awesome that we got to link up. Yeah, man. Uh, excited and excited for you to tell your story. And so um, I was, I think, told you a little bit of mine, or maybe you heard my podcast or something. But that kind of began the conversation. You know, I obviously have, a, you know, a history with drugs, drug abuse, prison, all of these things. And you brought up your dad. Right. And kind of that was the path that your dad was on and begin to share your story and then how you got into law enforcement and federal law enforcement and all this other stuff. And I was just blown away by it. Um, and so if you could just start, you know, where were you born? Tell me about your parents. Where did you grow up? 
Uh, tell them, tell us some of those stories of growing up and your dad and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and we'll go from there into really, you know, your, your law enforcement career. And then ultimately how you ended up, uh, running for office down there in Baldwin County. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and it's, a uh, it's crazy that it's how it comes full circle, like you said. And, and, you know, I'll kind of just, uh, if I, if there's so much of a story there, you could literally have a, a whole Netflix series just on my dad and, and my upbringing. But like, yeah, like as a kid, you know, it, it's it's funny, you know, um, when I got through with my career, because uh, I had such a wild and crazy stories, I, I was start, I was going to start to write a book. And I, I actually have a couple, you know, chapters in. And a friend of mine was like, I didn't know anything about writing. And he's like, look, you got to pitch a story that shows the whole overall aspect of it. He goes, I think you need to show how people can change their destinies uh, from where they started to where they become. And you, you don't have to be pigeonholed based on what society, you know, passes on. And, um, it, and it's true. I think that that's what the way I came up and the way I was brought up is why I was better at my job than most of my colleagues that came from different types of environments and upbringing. You know, it's, it's like I said, when we first met, the differences and the, the reason I was so good with, you know, informants and, and stuff like that is because when a lot of times when I was dealing with those people and I'm in the room interacting with them, I didn't look at them solely as criminals. You know, it's almost like it's, it's people from my world or my sure. side of the tracks that I came from. And so like as and, and in the end, if I get too far off, please just, you know, redirect me. But I, I'll just kind of give you an up upstart up of it like so as a kid i remember some of my earliest memories you know my dad was a great man he, he really was you know he 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 just had a couple things that had happened in out throughout his life that you know pushed him in a different direction or a different track you know um as growing up i remember hearing some of the guys in the bars and stuff around town tell stories that he was an amazing basketball player like had a scholarship and everything full ride and stuff and he had gotten in some trouble and you know, his only out at that point was to go into the uh, to the military and he went into the army. And, of course, you know, the trouble followed him there and he ended up getting out of that or, you know, uh, unwillingly getting out of that. And I think it is according to him when he got, um, you know, other than honorable discharge from the army, you know, they, they sent him to Leavenworth. And that was his first you know time that he had ever been in, in prison at that point. And. I remember him telling me stories. He was only a, about a year removed from college and he was, or, or a couple years, I'm sorry, a couple years out of college. I mean, out of high school. So he was still good at basketball. And he, I remember him telling a story about one time that they, uh, they basically, they were having teams to go and play against the high, uh, the college teams. And, and uh, he made sure that he did pushups every night and got in shape back in basketball shape to get on that, that team, to be able to get outside the, the prison to go and play and stuff just so he could get away. And, and it, it was crazy. Like um, he was telling me, you know, just some of the stories from that, he, you know, and then as some of my early childhood memories were, you know, going to visit my, my dad in, in institutions and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, as, as time went on later in life, uh, it was just always chaos and craziness. You know, it wasn't common. Like I remember um, there was a time one time I came home from school. I probably was maybe in seventh grade because I could walk to and from the school. And I remember coming home and one of the neighbors down the street had he had a he had a he had said something to my little brother, you know, who was about seven years younger than me. 
And uh, so these these two gentlemen on my porch, they got a cooler of beer. They're just hanging out and they're just waiting for, you know, my dad sitting on the porch, just as calm as can be. Of course, you know, he's not working and uh, he's waiting for the guy to come home. And uh, so as soon as the guy gets home, he walks down there and just beats the believing you know what out of him right there and told him never talk to, you know, his son again. Don't ever come down to the house again. Don't ever look this way. And so we had a street that was kind of like a cul-de-sac. And uh, after that event, and I'm, you know, sitting there watching this, after that event, the, the gentleman never would pass by our house ever again for like five years until he moved away. He, he always went out the back way. And, you know, my father, he uh, he had went through this thing and, you know, he had ven- eventually ended up hooking with, up, uh, linking up with some other guys out of El Paso, Texas. And, you know, they started amongst their exp- ex- escapades of, you know, drug smuggling and stuff. And I remember when I was, you know, I think I was 18. I was about two years away from graduation. And, you know, and then I remember uh, law enforcement and, and uh, you know, uh, it was law enforcement, postal, was postal agents, state and local narcotics, DEA. They, they raided our house and stuff, you know. And, and I'll never forget that, like, you know, he got in trouble again, had to go back to prison. I'm thinking this is like his fourth or fifth time and uh, for, for these incidences. And, um, you know, as a kid growing up, that that lifestyle shadowed me, you know, because, like, I remember... I remember one time, like I was speaking to a girl and I'd asked her to go out on a date and she's like, no, I'm sorry. I you know, my parents, I talked to my parents and you can't, you know, they won't let me go out with you because of your family and stuff, you know. And I remember one time I was at a, a, a stop sign and a police officer, local police officer, you know, hit his lights and he gets out of the car and comes up to the car and he's like, he's like, he gets my license. And as soon as he looks at it, he's like, oh, we're just waiting for you to hit 18 so we can lock you up too. you know, just totally. Wow. You know, just rebranding and refocusing based on, you know, your upbringing and, and your life and stuff like that, you know, and I, I think I had so much resentment. And like when situations like that happened with law enforcement uh, that involved me, I, I remember at that point on that stop, I was like, not only am I going to be a police officer, I'm going to be a better police officer than they are. And I'm going to push myself to get to the top of the ranks of law enforcement of the highest levels so that I can come back to this town and throw it in their face. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, around two, about 2000, I got hired with the police officer there in Oxford, Mississippi at the university there, uh, over there. And it wasn't shortly after that nine 11 happened. And so I'd already had a, you know, again, I went, uh, I pushed myself through college, you know, got my loans, got my stuff done. You know, my family still helped me and support me. And, and, uh, and then I put in for an application, which at the time there was no Homeland Security. I put in an application with the U.S. Marshal Service um, and they had so many applicants that they pushed a lot of people over to the U.S. Customs Service as special agents. And uh, I remember they sent a background investigator because in, in order to get cleared to be on, you have to go through this extensive background check, you know, and yet in order to get a top secret clearance and stuff like this. And I remember I was a nervous wreck. And uh, I remember at this time, like I said, my dad was through with all his escapades and he's, you know, doing his, he's got his life together and he's doing good, you know, as far as not getting in any more trouble and stuff. But I remember the investigator comes to the house and uh, he does his background interview on me and everything. He interviews all the neighbors. And uh, so 
I, I'm sitting there and while I'm there, I, I see my dad pull up and I'm like, oh my God, because no, I, I can see out the front window yeah. and I'm thinking, you know, here it goes. This is where, you know, my dreams are all just going to be, you know, destroyed and crushed and stuff. And uh, so the the interview guy stops and they, they have a conversation out there for a few minutes and, uh, and then my dad comes inside, you know, and I'm a nervous wreck. I'm like, well, what did y'all talk about? That's the first thing out of my mouth, you know, hey, what did you say to him? And, uh, and my dad just stopped and looked, you know, and he said, hey, I told that guy, I said, hey, uh, would you please give my son a job so he won't turn out like me? Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that was the most heartfelt thing I could think of at that time, you know. And then later on, they cleared me. And, uh, of course, the government, you know, snatched me up. And uh, my first post of duty after I got out of the academy was they sent me to South Texas in San Antonio. And I worked the U.S.-Mexico border all the way up to Texas. And we did control deliveries throughout the United States. And, you know, a few years after I'd been on, uh, they created Homeland Security. And, and uh, it just kind of went from that point. But... Yeah, crazy upbringing. Um, I mean, I, I can I can tell you stories all day long. I, I mean, like as a child, just that whole world is different. You know, people don't understand it. You know, you can work in law enforcement and see it. You can, you know, you can, and you, you know, Brian, how it is. That, you know, it's a whole different another world. It's like a it's like a whole different path in life. And uh, and you're over there in that world, and you don't see see things you see things differently than the rest sure. of, of, of society does and like i remember one time my dad had come home he had been in a bar fight there was always constant bar fights and uh he had this belief that he was a left-handed left-handed guy and, and while he was in um jail at one point somebody had taught him how to box so he was a really good boxer really fast he was tall lanky and quick and uh but in case you were to get the better of him he always carried a knife and if you were getting the better of him, he would stab you. That's just how it worked. And I remember one time I was probably, God, I must have been like 10 years old. My dad wakes me up and, and he's like, he'd been in a bar fight, stabbed a guy. You know, back then it's different. Like, yeah. you know, people kept their mouth shut. You know, nobody said anything. If you got hurt, you just went on about your business. And, and uh, I remember he wakes me up and he's like, hey, I need you to get the shovel. We got to bury this knife in the back of your yard because I stabbed this guy. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. You know? Thank God it was and a we, knife and not a person. It, 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 exactly you know <laughs> i was thinking that too yeah, yeah. absolutely you know grab and, the shovel uh, <laughs> grab the shovel but as a 10 year old kid yeah. he's done what you said you know so uh you know I, I go out there and we we bury that knife you know and no one ever showed up no police ever came by and and, and that was just the the extent of it you know i mean there was constant stories about that you know yeah. um if my dad had this he always took up for people too you know uh, it, it was crazy. Like if, you know, as, as, as much as he was, you know, I, I mean, I'd have people come up to me as I got older in life in my twenties and when I was in a bar, somebody'd come up, you know, and be like, Hey, you know, your dad's a good man. You know, he was, saw somebody picking on somebody smaller than, you know, them or, or bullying somebody and he'd go over there and tune them up. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just what he did. But a part of me is like, I think he really liked to fight. Yeah. So, you know, and maybe that's where I get a little bit from him on my, my, part of things you know uh if if i see somebody pushing against the system i push back you know and if, sure. if somebody's trying to push somebody around or the little person you know i, I always want to try to take up for them and but you know maybe that's part of what he passed on to me from that crazy world you know yeah no and it's an interesting thing so many people see so much um about that criminal lifestyle either in movies or uh through the news or something like that and among a certain sect of people in that lifestyle that i used to be a part of 
there is a certain level of honor among thieves and there are certain people that are more virtuous than others. And there's some people that there's no, no hope for. I mean, I, in prison, there was a lot of people where it's like, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and God can save whoever, but, um, you know, there, there was also a group of people in there that did things a certain way. And, and what was really interesting when I was in prison is the kind of honor code that existed inside a prison, like from everything from like you held the door open for the person that was coming behind you to, I mean, all kinds of little things like you didn't spit in the sink and like, there's just all these little things that everyone did. And it was like a, like a self-policing, you know, kind of society. But it's interesting to hear you talk about your dad who obviously lived a life that was against what the law said was right. Um, but yet possessed certain, uh, you know, inherent virtues, uh, about not picking on people or not talking to a son or whatever it was. Yeah, you know, and it, it, he told me a story. It made me think of that when you were just saying that. I, it, you know, he realized there at the end I, 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 that he had he had gotten older in life, and and when that uh, last incident happened where he got arrested, you know, on on the federal charges and stuff, he uh, he he had told me a story. He got, he goes to uh, uh, one of the county lockups where they're waiting to transport him over to federal, and, and uh, he said the way it works. <laughs> It's crazy. There's like you said, there's a whole system that people have no clue that goes on. And he said the fact that he knew he was going to be okay because they could pull his file. He said, even before you step foot in that jail, they've already looked at your file to see where you've come from and whether they can take advantage of you and can they push you around. And he said he knew right away having Leavenworth and Parchman Penitentiary, which is in Mississippi, one of the toughest penitentiaries ever to go to. I mean, if you've been to Parchman, you've done it and you survived, you've got street cred. And uh, he's telling me a story. He's like, I knew I was going to be fine because as soon as they looked at my record, they're like, no, we're not even messing with that guy. Yeah. He said, so as soon as he gets there, he's in that, that, that lockup, wait, move to the next location. He puts his uh, blanket up over the, the bar so you can't see into the cell. And he, take, he gets his radio, takes his batteries out, puts them in a sock. And then he said if they pull that sheet back, he'd smack those hands and, and smack them. You know, and he said they just eventually went away. And he, he's telling a story. He said, you know, they bring a young kid in, had got pulled over on the Natchez Trace for DUI. Well, the Natchez Trace is considered a federal property, so he's got to go through the whole federal system on a DUI. And I think that's the story. I mean, it could be off a little bit, but it's something yeah. along those lines. And he said that night, uh, or he, you know, or at some point, you know, throughout the process where guards aren't around, he said they went to waylaying on this kid. I mean, just beating, beating him, you know, up. And my dad's like, you know, I wanted to intervene. He goes in the past, I would have intervened in that situation and just, you know, took care of it. He said, but the problem was that he goes, it had changed so much over the years that it had now become as soon as he was to help that kid, he was going to have a mark on his back. And it had changed over the years from the early seventies to, to, you know, in the late nineties, he said it had just changed to the point where there was, it was tougher in prison than it, than it had been. And that, you know, if you tried to take up for somebody and you didn't have at least four or five people that had your back, you were in trouble. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you know, it, 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 it definitely is some honor there in it, but it's also a, a wild, crazy world. Yeah. Crazy. So you get into, uh, federal law enforcement, U S marshal comes, your dad says that to him, which is still, um, there's always these little moments in the storytelling in the podcast when I have different guests on um, that really just hit. And I think that that one to me is going to be one of those of uh, what your dad had to say to that that law enforcement officer uh, that was coming. But so you get in and like what kind of work were you doing? What are some some, uh, you know, customs and Department of Homeland Security stories? 
Oh man, it was crazy. Like I, I had, uh, you know, we go through the academy, we come out right after 9-11. And at the time we get to Texas and for the first couple months, everything was 9-11, work on terrorist operations, follow the money. That was the big thing with customs. We were trying to track money back to see where the money was for sales were going. I was young, so I'm just the gopher that drives around and follows people and, you know, and, and, and uh, stuff like that. Well, at some point, uh, when everything starts switching, Homeland Security is created. They had pulled every FBI agent you can think of and put them solely working terrorist operations. And when they, and, and as the FBI slowly started taking over all terrorist operations and stuff in, in every, in pretty much across the country, they pulled them out of all of the drug areas. Well, it left a void that they had to fill. Um, and they pushed a lot of us as special agents from customs and, in with DEA and stuff like that. And we started working those, those border areas down there. And it was like the wild west. It, it, this, you know, it, it's crazy. I, I remember when I first got there, you, it, well, you could drive down to uh, Laredo and right across is Nuevo Laredo. You could go across. There was no problem. There was a kind of a code back then that the cartels didn't operate in, uh, in the resort towns and they didn't operate along the border because you had so many, northerners that would come down in the winter and they would cross into, you know, Mexico and get dental or medical or their, their, you know, prescriptions and stuff like that. Well, probably around 2002, 2003, it changed to where it was, it was, it was, it had gotten dangerous. Uh, you couldn't go across anymore. Um, it, the cartels had slowly started moving up to the border. Um, they have taken over a lot of that territory, uh, and, and all that area was gone. And then it was just, I had got, with I had this boss and he was pretty smart. He has a bunch of new agents sitting around. I think nobody had. We had two agents in our group with 15 years of experience. The rest, everybody, were wet behind the ears. And I had a really smart supervisor. What he did was he goes and makes a deal with DEA, and he says, "Hey, I'm going to loan you a guy every six months." And uh, so we would go over. He, they would DEA would teach us how to tap phones. I mean, I'm not going to lie. DEA is the best at tapping cell phones ever <laughs> out of all the agencies. Interesting. And uh, we would do six months over there and we'd come back. He'd send another one six months over and come back. And then eventually he gets to the end and there's no more new people. He tells DEA, hey, sorry, we're not sending anybody else over because at that point we were all trained yeah. how to do it. So, we, you know, um, like it was crazy. Like I remember back then uh, we started tapping cell phones. Uh, and it was unheard of. Like now it's, it's, it's a lot easier. A lot of people are tapping phones. I mean, still a lot of hoops to go through, but it, you know, back then it was unheard of. I remember I, me tapping a cell phone. I think I was the second one ever in San Antonio, Texas with my agency, um, back then. And that's, you know, that's early two thousands. And, uh, I remember we were tapping uh, a cartel's phone that was coming across and <laughs> this is a crazy story. So like, they had this kid that lived in San Antonio. I say kid, he's probably in his twenties and uh, he was the go-to guy. So the cartel would send up millions of dollars worth of cocaine or, and at the time ice wasn't big. Uh, you know, ice had just come onto the scene. I remember we seized like 15 to 20 kilos of ice, which at the time was unheard of with the amount of money that it was worth. And this kid, he, they would they would call him because he had a he had a passport he could come and go back and forth to Mexico nobody ever messed with him and uh and it, his name was Armando Nolasco and uh anyway so this guy would come up and uh, they would deliver to him and then they would tell him he, he's the midway point and then he would take it to Dallas or if the money came down from Dallas then he would drive it into Mexico and and uh, I remember we were tapping his phone one time and 
And uh, so he was broke because the cartel was jipping him. Now they're moving millions of dollars worth of drugs and they're giving him like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks every time to do this. But he's a broke college kid. So he's just taking the money, doing whatever. And uh, so one day he, uh, he didn't pay his cell phone bill. And uh, you know, they shut his phone off Well, we're tapping his phone. And I'm like, Oh my God, if their phone shut off, we're not going to be able to listen to his phone calls. So I get my management to approve $150 or 180 bucks or whatever it was. I drive over to T-Mobile and I pay his cell phone bill and the cell phone comes back on. <laughs> and so anyway, he, at, at first he doesn't think anything about it. But what we're doing is that he would pick up the dope and when he would drop it off to the second guy, we would rest that guy for the drugs on a traffic stop or when the money would come down and he'd hire, hand the money off to the guy going to Mexico, we would rip the money and just let the guy go. So the cartel couldn't quite figure out where the leak was. And so the second month rolls around and he doesn't pay his cell phone again. And I'm like, oh, my Lord, you know, so I get the money again. I go to T-Mobile and pay it. And his mom calls him from Mexico and his mom tells him, hey, you know, Armando, uh, I think they I think something's wrong, you know, because he's saying, hey, I don't know. My phone goes off. I'm not paying the bill. And every time I set it down, it just comes back on. And uh, his mom's like, no, I think you're overreacting. He's like, mom, you don't understand. I think they got a hook in my phone, which means we're tapping. Yeah. And now he's talking on it, but he thinks, you know, hey, they could be yeah. tapping it. And uh, she says, no, it's just probably that crazy girlfriend you're dating. It has nothing. It's not what you think it is. And he's like, no, I, I think it is. So we're in the wire room. We're listening. Everybody in there is like, he's just going to calm down. He's going to go away. And I'm like, no, no, nah, he's not. He's really spooked. And yeah. we can't afford to lose him because we'll lose all communication. So anyway, he starts making a couple phone calls. And I realize, no, he's going to throw this phone away. And so I grab one of the monitors who was a female. And I write down on this list. I said, hey, here, I want you to say these words. We're going to go over here. And we go to this room where we got a clean phone line. And I have her calling. And uh, she says, hey, Mr. Nolasco. I was calling because you keep calling T-Mobile asking about how your phone bill is getting paid. She goes, as soon as you called that last time, we started doing some research and we're fine. You're okay. In fact, your payment, the payment that was coming in was from somebody else supposed to go to another phone. And that now that we've done our research, you owe us $500. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I knew he would buy that. And, yeah. uh, immediately he gets off the phone and he calls his mom and he's like, mom, mom, you were right. It's not that he goes, uh, it was the wrong thing. And I owe T-Mobile $500. And she's like, I'm not paying you that $500. You better figure out where to come with that money, you know? And, uh, so anyway, we go through, we seize a bunch of money and drugs from him, arrest a ton of people. And, uh, we're down in court afterwards and we're sitting there one day and, and we're getting ready to leave and, and, uh, he's, you know, cooperating and stuff. And we're sitting there and he's like, is there anything else you'd like to ask? And I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to know why didn't you drop that phone that first time I paid that bill? And he's like, I knew you were tapping my phone. I knew it. And I'm like, yeah, if you knew it, you would have dropped it. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's crazy. It was crazy times, you know? And then, um, like I said, you know, I, I, I'd met a gentleman down in Laredo, uh, you, you know, um, had been working there and he was from Baldwin County and his name was Joe Bettner and great man. I mean, he, he went on to be a great mentor in my life and he was over here and he was in Laredo cause they had sent him down there to set that office up. And this goes to show you how crazy the border is. I, I haven't checked on the numbers in a few years, but when I met him in around 2003, they had 15 agents in Laredo, Texas. 
I think in 2015, they had upwards of 100 to 125 agents. So that goes to show how much that place has grown and, mm. and from where he had it. And, and, uh, he had watched me work, uh, down through that area. And then, uh, he asked me one time, he's like, Hey, where, you know, uh, where are you from? And I said, Oh, I'm from, you know, uh, Mississippi. And he goes, what do you want to go with me to Alabama? And I was like, well, I don't know anybody in Alabama. And he goes, well, you know me. He goes, if you want to get out of Texas, you better come with me. Cause he goes, I can't get you to Mississippi. And, uh, you know, I knew that, uh, for a family life that I couldn't keep running and gunning like that. I had two, yeah. you know, two, two boys and I took him up on his offer and, and moved over here to Baldwin County. Uh, and, uh, I thought my life would slow down and come to a, uh, kind of a, a, a halt. You know, and then I was going to lose that lifestyle of, of what I was used to in Texas. And actually it took off even more crazier and, you know, bigger cases traveling the world, traveling, you know, throughout South America and Central America and, uh, some of the best times of my life. But yeah, it goes to show you, you can, you could definitely change your upbringing and, and, uh, and make it, make an impact to, to a lot of people. Yeah. And there's so many people that say, you know, I was born into this. I can't break this cycle. I can't, you know, um, there's no hope. And, um, you know, your story obviously points to the fact that, you know, you're master of your own destiny, you know, um, you can make this is, and this is, I tell this when I share my story all the time, you know, my eye opening moment is when I realized as I was sitting in a cell by myself for 23 hours a day, facing a whole bunch of time in prison, I realized it was my fault. And if it was my fault, that meant my bad decisions created the bad circumstances. But what that also meant is that I was free to make good decisions that would create good circumstances. And so right. I was free to create what would happen in the future. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean there's not consequences or whatever, but um, it, it, it is uh, that sense of personal responsibility and not becoming a victim uh, of your circumstances. Um, that's what makes our country unique. Um, and, um, you know, and, and kind of in your own way of uh, achieve the American dream on that front. It, it, it is, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I sometimes would have to stop myself and think, you know, here I am, you know, uh, like when I was in DC, I was assigned, I went up there for two years. You have to go up there and give them your pint of blood if you want to move into management. And I, I was over there and, um, while I was in DC, I was also going once a week over to, um, to Langley over at, at CIA, uh, office over there and uh <laughs> i was always like country come to town because you, when you go in you got these little gates with these guards and stuff and mm -hmm. you got to put your your id pad you, you put your id down you got to put like they don't make it easy either by the way you got to put like some 20 code digit thing in here and, and you got to remember this 20 code because you can't write it down and you got to have all these protocols to get in and every time i would go to that that entrance it, i would look back because the guards sit on the other side of it and as i come to it they're like here he comes again he's not going to be able to do this code you know he's not gonna he's gonna mess it up and we got to get up from our desk and go up here and help him get in and, uh, but I, I look back at that and i'm like okay i look from where i came from to sitting in you know langley virginia uh yeah. in a room full of people talking about moving nuclear missiles and stuff and and, and national security matters and i'm like you know, it's just, it's it it is. It's like you said. You you can change your your course and direction in life. Amen. Let me ask you this. Um, I talked to just like the other day. I was at some event. Was it a dinner and or a lunch? I can't remember. They all blend together. Um, and this guy sits down next to me. He's former federal law enforcement. Um, sounds very similar to background with you. I think he was more with the FBI though. And he says he got out because, you know, when it was at his peak in like 2000 to you know 2010, 
it was all about anti-terrorism and the terrorists were terrorists. He said then about 2015 to today, it was anti-terrorist, but the terrorist was us, right? The terrorists became middle American Christian parents that didn't want the stuff going on in our schools, right? That are now being targeted by the, you know, um, department of whatever that is that, um, that we're seeing at the people, the parents that show up to school board meetings. Did before you got out, did you sense the kind of a a direction shift? Absolutely. So, uh, I I saw it shifting too, and it it was crazy. So sometimes they'll send out these memos and these protocols that they're supposed to, to tell you to do. And I, I I just never forget. I was over in Baldwin County here. Well, I was here in Baldwin County. We were, they do these things called the chiefs meetings where they have these, um, the heads of the departments go around and it's all the federal agencies, all the chiefs of police from all the local departments and they get together, have coffee and talk about things to impact the community, how to make a difference. And, and, uh, this is probably around 2016 or 17. Um, maybe it may have been a little bit later actually, you know, because it was right around the time all the stuff started coming out about parents going to school meetings and the school boards and stuff like that. And I'll never forget the the agent in charge of the FBI stands up and, you know, cause they go around the room. Hey, would you like to say anything? Would you like to say anything? They get to him. He stands up and he's like, yes, you know, we got this memo that came out and we'd like all y'all to be vigilant. If you have any information about, you know, school board member, I mean, people threatening school board members or approaching the school board about stuff with their kids. Cause we would, you know, need that information. And a friend of mine, I go up to afterwards and I was like, are we seriously having this conversation that that's what we're focusing on? I was like, if the American public knew that that's what we're having a discussion on and that's where our priorities are, they would lose their mind. Actually, you know what? I'm wrong on the date because it was, it was Biden's first year of office. It was right when I was about to get out, but cause that's, that's, uh, that's right around the time it was. And I just remember that's, that's the government's priority is, is, looking at parents that are complaining at the school board about them not taking care of their children. Yeah. When we, ha- when we have other threats, real ones, China, real, yeah. all these other things. Yeah. It's insane. And you know, the first thing I saw this video, it was an FBI training video that somehow got leaked and it was talking about terrorists. And, you know, he said, you know who the first terrorists were, were the founding fathers, you know, and how they meet all the qualifications of a terrorist. Like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's scary stuff. I mean, cause golly, you know, you go back, um, you know, the, the, for sure the, the, these, you know, federal law enforcement agencies and everything else have probably always, you know, done some things that would make Americans nervous or whatever, but it was never pointing the entire apparatus at the average citizen, right. Which is kind of where it seems to be now. It was crazy there at the end when I was getting out, you know, cause yeah. I got out right when they were pushing the vaccine mandate shots. Mm. Um, and I, I actually, to took, I took a picture of this too, and I still have it because nobody would believe I have it because that, you know, when you log on to the computer system, um, it brings up a warning banner and the warning banner, some genius, I don't know who came up with this great idea, creates a countdown clock and puts it on every computer connected throughout Homeland Security. And basically it would count down the seconds. And it was like, count down till you're not vaccinated. At what point when it hit zero, they wanted you to terminate your employees that, mm. that, had, that hadn't taken the vaccine. And I remember we had uh, three guys in our office um, and two of them came to me and they're like, hey, 
you really want us to go out and run this child predator warrant when it says I'm being fired in 30 days, 26 hours, 15 seconds? You know, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to motivate your people to go out and, and do, you know, protect their country when their own government's talking about, hey, your 15 years of service is worthless. Mm. Uh, we're going to terminate you because you won't take a, a you know, experimental a vaccine, yeah. experimental mandate. But it was just mind blowing to me because it's like, OK, so, you know, we're going to have a issue. We're going to have a discussion about abortion. And we're going to yeah. holler when it's abortion, it's your body, your, ch- you know, your choice. But when it comes to a vaccine from a, a pharmaceutical company, it's not your choice and it's not your right. You know, yeah. so I, uh, again, if you took it, you took it. If you didn't, you didn't. That's it's neither here nor there, but it it, it, it shouldn't be forced on you. And, and Correct. I, I didn't understand where they thought if they were going to start firing these people, where they were going to backfill this experience from. Yeah. You know, it's insane. You mentioned something else you were doing in there too. Um, and it was kind of a brief topic of conversation on my front porch, smoking cigars was, um, towards the end of your career in federal law enforcement. Um, you were working on child predator stuff. That's obviously sex trafficking. Human trafficking is, um, you know, uh, has, has been, is seems to have really gone on the rise or maybe our awareness of it. Movies like sound of freedom. Uh, my buddy, Jared Hudson and the work he's doing with covenant rescue group, yeah. Um, you know, this kind of stuff, it seems to be, you know, what kind of work were you doing, uh, there, if you can talk about it? Yeah. You know, I, I ran a unit here, um, that we, we targeted the child predators, I mean, throughout Baldwin County and stuff like that in, in Mobile County and, and the Southern district. And, and, uh, and, and through that course, I had met some gentlemen down in Orange Beach that, um, uh, that were working on a, a project. They were called the Children's Rescue Initiative. And, and they were wanting to do a lot of more operational stuff here in the United States because they were doing a lot of stuff abroad um, on child slavery and human trafficking. And we started putting some stuff together, but then I retired, you know, uh, shortly after that. And then it, uh, some time went by and, and one day I get an email from one of the gentlemen. They had tracked me down and uh, asked me if I'd like to come and join their organization and, and be on their board of directors. Uh, they were remodeling a bunch of stuff and they wanted to to, to shrink it down keep it with a core group uh, of experienced law enforcement officers, military, uh, retired. Most of everybody's retired, you know, and, and basically they don't, nobody draws a check. It's, it's people that, you know, just do it because they want to make a difference. And I said, okay, well, look, I'll, I'll entertain and I'll consider your offer. But if I do this, I said, I'd like to go and, um, and see firsthand. And, uh, so, you know, they're like, yeah, Absolutely. And uh, last April, uh, we went overseas and we ended up rescuing 21 children and, uh, you know, from slavery. And it's crazy to, to imagine that you're going to some of these countries and that you're going you're going out where there's no law enforcement. There's no military. There's just it's just no man's land. And then you run across a field and there's all these children just that who knows where they came from and how they came into the possession of the, the, the you know, the the slave master. And then they put them to work in the brick fields. And they're just these little kids, you know, from the ages of six to 13 and they're they're drinking out of mud puddles and they're lifting bricks and they're, you know, and I remember one time we, uh, so the, the, you know, we, we work with the church groups in those countries and the church groups identify which children are are slaves, you know, and, and, uh, they identify it, you know, and I, I remember we, we go to, to get these six children that we identified as slaves. And uh, there's this lady, she comes running up and she's like, please take me with you. I mean, you know, and uh, she she was, you know, I can't I, I don't know how old she was. She was probably in her early 30s or late, late 20s. And she her husband had died. And so she goes to the owner of the brick field and asked for some money to bury her husband. And he told her, OK, well, I'll give you the money to bury your husband. But you have to come back here and work this 
off. And uh, that was seven years to the time we ran into her. She'd been there seven years and she had never been able to leave. Wow. And uh, of course, you know, we're like, yeah, absolutely. Get in the van. And, you know, we, we took her and we put her with the church and the church took her in. And and uh, in some of these countries, it's funny. People are like, well, which church did you take them to? You know, the Methodist, Baptist, you know, yeah. Catholic. You know, like, no, look, in some of these countries you go into, there's there's either Christianity, there's there's uh, Muslim, yeah. Hindu, Buddhism, that's it, you know. Yeah. And and uh, so, you know, the it's just, it's a unique experience. I got to see it firsthand. And, and then I got to see a whole other aspect to where we, um, they, they did something different that I saw. You know, I've been involved in a lot of veteran stuff over the years and, different organizations and different charities. And I saw for the first time that we actually spent a whole nother week going around to uh, interview children that they had been rescued on previous missions. And we separated the children from the, the family and we would interview the family, the host family, the Christian family. And then we'd interview the child and we'd ask him questions like, what do you do at school? Who's your favorite friend? Who do you sit next to? Do you like a sport? You know, do you like to do this? And, and then we would ask the parents the same questions. And so that way it couldn't be scripted by a parent or a child. Mm. And we could make sure the money is going to, to the child. And then we would uh, compare the notes to make sure. And, and I mean, we were 100 for 100. Everybody was legitimately letting the, you know, the money that comes from the organization to the child. And that was the first time I was like, wow, you know, and it was like, it's something it's crazy to think of. You know, we, we get stuck in our ways and we come back and we get lost in our own environment, our own society, our own problems and stuff. And then you think that here we here I am in another country and I'm paying twenty eight dollars, probably what I spend on a lunch some days or a dinner, you know, uh, twenty eight dollars. And I'm, I'm here I am for 30 days. I'm housing, clothing and feeding a child and send it to to send that child to school. You know, and you and you look at that and you go, you know, it's, it's sometimes you, you think we've lost our way as, as society and people that we forget that, you know, people are struggling and people are hurting out there. And, that you know, and so, I mean, like I said, we go and help these children, you know, are they going to replace them and find new slaves and put new ones in there? I mean, probably so, you know, but our focus when I got with that group was just for that, you know, and uh, I enjoy it. It's a, a lot of good people. Um, like I said, it's a lot of retired military they uh, just they, they got their pensions, they do their thing, and they just go to help out the cause. What's the name of the group? It's the Children's Rescue Initiative. You guys got a website or a Facebook page or something, social media presence? They do. It's all on Facebook. You just look up Children's Rescue Initiative uh, out of Pennsylvania. Um, it's a great site. Go check it out. I mean, it, it is. We just did an event down in Orange Beach. We raised a ton of money. The, the city of Orange Beach and a lot of the, the people in that community down there are amazing. I mean, they came out in full force. I mean, we had a couple hundred people there, uh, all supportive, all willing to do their their bit for the cause. And it, it's in, it's neat to see these people step up and and say, hey, you know what? I'm a, I, I'm either too old or I can't fly over, you know, or I can't do this, you know, and, and go sit in a car for hours on surveillance. But I, I, I can help throw some money in to let yeah. these other warriors of God go do their thing. Yeah. Orange Beach, an incredible place to. It is the, great. The right people, buddy. That, right. that place is amazing. Um, great people down there. Unbelievable. So we'll close with this. And then, um, guys, we're going to be doing a, an overtime segment with Angelo where we talk about what's going on at the border. Um, so one of the reasons people wanted us to get together is they said that they supported your run for office. And so you've got a pretty, I wouldn't say an eclectic career, but a really interesting career in federal law enforcement. You kind of hang up the gloves, then you're doing this, you know, kind of 
sex trafficking or you know human trafficking rescue and then you're like i'm gonna run for office what uh what office <laughs> did you run for uh, and, and why look i had no idea uh what i was probably doing at the time but i i, I ran for the state house here in alabama uh and people are like well why did you why did you pick the, that position to run for? And it was because when I was on the other side in law enforcement, I noticed that um, that uh, we didn't have a law to tap phones in Alabama, you know. And uh, so uh, Sam Cochran, great man, you know, he, I go to him. We we had a task force with him, and he says, "Hey, look, I ha-, he actually had a deputy that was assigned as a uh, a legis- I mean, as a, he would go to up to Montgomery and lobby and stuff, and for the sheriff's department and sheriff's organization as a whole. I go to him and I pitch my idea. I said, I want to tap, I want to be able to tap a phone, you know, be able to tap a phone because I had saw under Obama, they were putting so many regulations in front and and so many roadblocks that we as law enforcement couldn't even do our job. You know, and I was like that, you know, we need to like Mississippi has a law and Mississippi's able to do their own, own thing through the state. And it's fast. Like you can, Within a few days, you're up on a phone and you're listening. And if that target drops the phone, you're on to the next one. And I was like, we as Alabama need to be able and, and fentanyl was coming on to the scene at the time. new, And I was like, we need to be able to target this crisis, you know, yeah. that's coming with that and heroin. And, and uh, you know, we went up a bunch of times we met and then we, we got Aaliyah involved and Aaliyah uh, kind of, you know, uh, took the ball at one point and ran with it. I got to work with another um, uh, state legislator from up north. Uh, Rex Reynolds and, and a great guy. I mean, he drafted it up and tried to push it through a couple of times. It's funny, you know, as it's, as, as he pushed it, pushed it forward a couple of times to try to get it going, you know, people would come in and say, Hey, let's add this and let's add this to it. And I was like, no, no, stop. If y'all want to add money laundering or whatever else y'all want to add later on, you come back and try it, but let's just focus on the, the narcotic epi- and the opioid and the fentanyl and epidemic that we're having, you know, yeah. that's where the impact needs to be. And, um, Anyhow, so, you know, he tried it. And, of course, right when the time when Rex was pushing that forward, COVID had hit. And so a lot of stuff got delayed and stuff got shut down and things just kind of sat there. And and uh, and that's that's kind of where I got into it. I was like, OK, if I can help draft up laws, because people are like, you should go into the federal government. You should help. I was like, no, I don't want anything to do with the federal government anymore. Only thing I wanted to do was draft up laws to help the state of Alabama and help our citizens and and because you could almost see it like a blueprint watching television. I mean, they had, they're the crazy socialist liberals are attacking certain states and, and they're trying to modify and change the state from within. And I was like, OK, if you pass a law and you get it locked in, they're not going to be able to come in here and modify and change uh, the way we have our lifestyle. Because I, I, I love it here. My kids love it here. We got a great lifestyle here. And, and there's a reason. All these people are moving from Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and all over God's creation, Alabama, is because we have something really good here. Yeah, they even and, come and from that, Mississippi. Exactly. I know. <laughs> I brought a lot of them over from Mississippi. <laughs> That's why your property value is going down. There you go. Oh, man. Good stuff. Well, Angelo, um, I can tell yeah. you're definitely going to be someone else I have come on the podcast again. Um, Absolutely. Thank stories. you. Stories. That's it, dude. I love to hear stories. You've got no, an incredible got story. And I mean, me and you could probably go back and forth on That's more stories. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and even if we don't record it, we can smoke cigars and do it anyway. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, guys, that'll wrap it up for this week. Um, make sure you, 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 if you're not a member, you're going to want to become a member so that you can hear this. This is going to be really interesting insight from a retired Homeland Security agent. Uh, Angelo here. He's going to be telling us about what's going on at the border, 
um, from his standpoint and his point of view. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting. So uh, make sure you guys sign up to become a member so that you don't have access to that. Until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>